Hey, Claire, have you and Maple been to the veterinarian recently? Uh, technically not me and Maple. I have to say my husband tends to do the vet trips. <laughs> but, of course, we came back to the UK a couple of months ago, so she had to have all the vaccinations and the vet checks. So mm. that would have been our most recent one. What about you, Jim? Well, throughout the pandemic, we spent a lot of time and a lot of money at veterinarians because we were treating two dogs with cancer. So, yeah. Yeah, so I think we can probably agree that Regular trips to the vet are very important and part of dog ownership, but there is that problem. Yes, it's the expense. Going there can be pretty darn expensive. Yeah, we've kind of got to the stage in our household where I'm in happy denial. I don't even ask my husband how much it costs anymore. He just pays for it because it needs to be done, right? (laughs) Well, going to the vet can really add up. But here's the thing. Even though pet care is expensive, vets really are on our side. The problem isn't that our vets are trying to scam us, but that the economics of the veterinary industry are really, really complicated, which is why in this episode, we're going to do our best to understand the cost of pet care. Hello, I'm James Jacobson in Maui, Hawaii. And I'm Claire Mansell in London, England. Welcome to Dog Edition. Where voices from around the world consider all things dog. Dog Edition is the first show designed for you to listen to while you walk your dogs. Today's episode is all about understanding the costs of pet care. We'll be answering questions like, why has your vet bill skyrocketed in the last decade? And how has COVID-19 impacted the veterinary industry? And is pet insurance really worth it? And a lot more. So if you love dogs as much as we do, pause what you're doing, leash up your pup, and let's go for a walk, because we've got a lot to talk about on today's episode of Dog Edition. Hey Pepper, want to go for a walk? If you're past a certain age and have had pets throughout your life, you might remember a time when going to the veterinarian was a lot less expensive than it is now. I'm sure that's true, but can't we say that about the price of everything? I mean, we have rampant (laughs) inflation in the UK at the moment. Everything is going up. Everywhere. The global economy is not in great shape. But the rising cost of veterinary care is a separate issue altogether. We spoke with Jenna Strugowski, a former vet technician turned pet journalist. Pet spending has increased. Um, more exponentially than it had in the past. I would say billions of dollars, maybe about $10 billion in the last decade. Whoa, $10 billion. That is a lot of money. So it's not (laughs) just inflation driving up that cost. What is it? Well, what is it is a complicated question, but there are many things, and we're going to cover some of them in great detail on today's episode. But first, let's put the modern veterinary industry into historical perspective. In the past, there are a lot more small private practices, rural practices. It was more of a family doctor kind of thing. And people would, I think, way in the past, even trade services or vets would be a little more forgiving and say, oh, we'll just do this exam and see if we can find you a discount on a product or something. There's a little more leeway on working in a small family rural practice. That sounds Pretty cool, actually. It's very different from how going to the vets works today. I mean, I'm pretty good at baking and maybe making a tasty (laughs) lasagna, but I'm thinking my vet wouldn't be interested in accepting my cooking as payment (laughs) these days. I I wish they would. Mm, 
I don't think they would, but I, I want to try it myself. <laughs> One of the key words, though, in what she was saying is rural. We might take it for granted that dogs today live in our homes with us, sometimes in very small city apartments. But that wasn't always the case. Before parasite controls and vaccines became mainstream for dogs, as recently as the 1970s and 80s, a lot of dogs were outside pets. When pets became more appropriate to be indoors, now that your pet's not bringing fleas in your house all the time, people started realizing they didn't have to live on a farm to have a dog or have a big yard in the suburbs. People started realizing they could live with their pets in the cities and have them part of their daily lives. So, of course, that's an opportunity. You know, who wants to drive out to the country to get their dog to the vet if they live in the city? So I'm sure it started with small practices in the cities. But like anything else, people with a sense for business and finance are going to look for opportunities and they're going to seize them. And those people with a sense for business and finance that Jenna was talking about, those are generally corporate veterinary practices. And because of all the money in their coffers, I'm sure these corporate (sighs) veterinary practices have access to all the best medical equipment that private practices might not. Yeah, that is sometimes the case. And if a private practice wants to compete with a nearby corporate practice by, you know, renovating and refurbishing its facilities or investing in new technology, they have to raise their prices. But it's really a catch-22 because they'll never be able to keep their prices as low as the corporate competitors who are subsidized particularly in cities where the cost of living is really high. So this is basically the classic tale of big corporates squeezing out the small players out of the market, and it applies to so many industries. It is, but the issue of corporate practice versus private practice isn't black and white. Even though some critics say that corporates have had a negative impact on the sustainability of smaller private practices, the rise of corporates has also done a lot of good for the veterinary industry. Here's Jenna. I think it has helped to raise the standards. They want to do it right. By raising the standards, we're talking about things like better medical equipment and more accurate lab tests and more rigorous qualifications for the practitioners. The industry has really transformed in the last several decades, and corporate investment has been a big part of that. It's a high-tech business, you know, versus the one that we made to think of of James Harriet or something where, you know, you go out and you just look at the animal and you do it, what's wrong with it, and you pull something out of the truck. That is Dr. Marty Becker, otherwise known as America's veterinarian. And James Harriet, the guy that he mentions, is a famous British vet and author from the mid-20th century. You know him, Claire. <laughs> well, not personally, but yeah, <laughs> he's, he's kind of a, you know, if you think of a vet in the UK, you think of him. Ah, I see. Okay. And when he talks about the imagery of him going and getting something out of his truck, I mean, I can picture that totally from the TV shows when I was a kid. Yeah, he's, he's kind of like a veterinary icon in the UK. I totally get it. Anyway, in terms of how these elevated standards affect the cost of pet care, it's kind of nuanced. Even though we had just talked about the fact that corporates can charge less for a lot of things than private practices can, these higher tech investments that we associate with corporate practices are still driving up the overall price of pet care. Uh, So no matter what kind of clinic you go to, the overall consumer price is still going up. Exactly. And to add further to this 
nuanced situation. Mm. Raising the standards of veterinary care might cost pet owners more, but I assume that the positive of this is it also means higher quality care in the end for our dogs, which is a good thing. Absolutely. And given the behind the scenes picture that we're starting to paint here, it's important for us to realize that the high vet bills that every dog owner has to deal with now and then are not scams. Unlike human hospitals, for example, mm. and the human healthcare industry in general, profit margins, and that's important, profit margins for veterinary practices are shockingly low. Here's Dr. Marty. If you're a good operator, it's 6%. It's a very low margin. 6% is the national average. Wow. And that is low for business, and that includes private practices. Profit margins for the corporate vet clinics that we're talking about here are a little bit larger than that, but honestly, not by much. I have a sister that's a physician, and if I was going to tell somebody, I want to become financially successful in my life, should I be a physician or should I be a veterinarian? You should definitely be a physician. So I have to start redirecting my daughter's ambitions now away <laughs> from, from being a vet. This is This is quite sobering, isn't it? It really is. So... You know, this comparison between vets and physicians is reminding me of the perhaps obvious fact that vets also have to go to med school. And I don't know exactly how it works in the States, but certainly in the UK, it's one of the longest courses that you can do at university. Yeah, a veterinary school, continuing the theme of our discussion thus far, is very expensive. The average veterinary student coming out has $150,000 in debt. So you're going to be paying a lot of debt service. Not only that, but Marty points out, the starting salaries aren't that high. So if I'm a veterinarian and telling people about career choices or talking to people in my profession, it's hard to be financially successful. You can be emotionally wealthy. Oh, this is, this is heartbreaking, isn't it? It's really heartbreaking to listen to. But... I'm just glad that there are enough people who value their passion for what they do over how much money they make. Well, it's that emotional satisfaction that Dr. Marty was talking about. That is what they get out of this. And uh, that is what we all benefit from. Yay to vets! <laughs> Absolutely. And I suspect there are plenty of them who, like my daughter, have wanted to do it since they were really, really young. And, and fulfilling that ambition is, is amazing to be able to look after animals. Even so, that amount of student debt is not a light burden to bear. It's frankly horrifying to hear that kind of amount of money. And even if that's something that the vets are dealing with on a personal level, I'm sure it factors into the consumer cost of veterinary care in the end. It does, and it also factors into the number of students who are enrolling in veterinary schools. I'm a veteran veterinarian. Graduated, went to veterinary school in 1976, graduated in 1980. When I applied to veterinary school, 16 applicants for every position. Let's go forward to today. If I was applying to veterinary school, there's only 1.4 applicant for every opening in veterinary school. Now, what happened? Still a lot of people saying, I always wish they could be a veterinarian, but when you look at the economics of it, I go a four-year degree in computer science, computer programming, and I start out 100 grand a year or more. I'm a veterinarian. I've got eight years of college. I've lost eight years of earning capacity. So I don't make anything for eight years, and I'm going out in debt. If I had a four-year degree, I'm only out four years. So it's just fewer and fewer people want to apply. And guess what? 
A short-staffed industry means, yet again, higher consumer prices. The COVID-19 pandemic has wreaked total havoc on staffing in veterinary practices, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But there are a couple of other factors contributing to the high cost of pet care that I think we should explicitly cover. Think about this. Most physicians work in a group office. On the human side, they send you to radiographs. In the veterinary side, they have a radiology machine. If you're in a, in a human side, you go to a hospital for surgery. In a veterinary practice, you do surgery there. So it's a very high overhead because you have dental radiology, you have general radiology, you have surgery suites, you have anesthesia machines, you have post-operative recovery, and it takes, it takes a lot of staff. On one hand, that kind of one-stop shop aspect of the vet is very convenient, but... But for other reasons that Marty just laid out, we are also paying for that convenience with our veterinary bills. Again, the profit margins when compared to human medicine are just not high enough to justify many specialists running their own practices. So what's the other thing you wanted to mention before we moved on? Well, back in the day when smaller private vet clinics were more predominant, they were usually run by one or maybe two people who basically would want to provide as much care for your pet as they possibly could at the least amount of money. Now, they would charge for things like vaccines and medicines, but maybe they'd give you a free or at least a discounted exam. I guess that's something that vets can't get away with so easily nowadays, because if you're on the corporate side, everything is tracked and accounted for, and you don't have that flexibility. But even if you do run your own practice, you probably don't make much money on products like medicine nowadays. Why would I buy my Simperica or my HeartGuard from the veterinarian when I can buy it from Chewy? You've got Chewy, 1-800-PET-MEDS, you got all these sites. They can buy their meds somewhere else for a discount. They can get their vaccines for a discount at shot clinics. But when they get that exam, somebody's got to pay for that time. And a doctor's time is worth a lot of money. Jenna Strugowski says there is a distinction between commodity products and services. You were hinting at the effects of COVID-19 on the pet industry. What happened there? Was it the great resignation that we've been hearing about? As you might imagine, the impact has been overall very poor for the veterinary industry. We're going to hear from Karen Leslie, who is the executive director of the Pet Fund on this topic. For context, the Pet Fund is a wonderful nonprofit that helps pet owners out who need a little assistance to cover the cost of their veterinary bills. We'll talk more about the specifics of that organization in just a bit, but here is Karen now. At the beginning of COVID, many staff, that is vet techs, vet staff, just quit. Prior to COVID, they had very long hours, high stress, low pay, and that drove a lot of people permanently out of the veterinary space. And as we've been discussing, part of the reason why it's hard to raise pay for vet techs and other staff members is because that means raising prices for consumers. And for so many people, those prices are already unaffordable as it is. Mm-hmm. And in case you are wondering what percentage of pet owners find going to the vet unaffordable, as in I cannot afford it, Dr. Marty has the sobering answer. It depends on the survey, but 30 to 50% of pet parents cannot afford veterinary care for their pet. But we digress. Back to Karen's breakdown of COVID and the veterinary industry. Veterinarians retired in large numbers. 
And at the same time, many more people adopted animals, specifically from shelters who needed vet care. This sounds like all the necessary ingredients for a supply and demand crisis. Which, as we know... Drives up prices. Drives up prices. So where does the industry stand today? Two years later, we have noticed an insane jump in costs. So as an example, we used to get rare stories about a $30,000 emergency bill. That's not rare anymore. We're getting them constantly now. That's crazy. And part of the problem, too, if you have an animal, I don't care if it's basic care, specialty care, or emergency care, you may face lengthy waits. The kind of wait that we're used to having in the emergency room where you sit there for 20 hours before you get help, that scenario now applies to veterinary emergency hospitals. They're understaffed. They have way too many people needing help. And the costs continue to go up. I think you were onto something, Claire, when you said crisis. Even with the veterinary professionals doing everything that they can to help us and our pets, the landscape for so many pet owners and veterinary professionals, for that matter, can look pretty bleak. Well, here's a positive thing. What was this about the pet fund? You said that they work with pet owners in need and they give financial assistance. They do. In fact, we will talk about that after the break. We're going to learn about their organization and other solutions for some issues that we've been discussing. We'll be right back. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green grassy beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. Before the break, we heard about the many factors which are contributing to rising veterinary costs. But now we're going to find out about the Pet Fund. What is it and what do they do? Well, let's have Karen Leslie describe it. We've been in operation over 20 years. The reason we got started was that we realized that animals were being surrendered to shelters, not necessarily for behavioral reasons, but specifically for treatable medical issues. 
where $100 would mean the difference between being able to keep your animal and provide their vet care or not. And that to us was an issue that wasn't being addressed, wasn't being addressed comprehensively and certainly not nationally. And thus, the pet fund was born. That's amazing. Yeah, and the nuts and bolts of how it works, given all the industrial complexity that we've been discussing, is fairly simple. Anybody in the 50 states can apply. The process is they contact us via email and describe their situation. If they're eligible for our program, they apply to us. We talk to their treating veterinarian about their prognosis. And then if they're eligible, we fund their care. If they're not eligible, we provide them with resources where they can get help. If you would like to learn more about the Pet Fund, we have a link to their website in the show notes. In addition, there is a link where you can learn more about how you might make a donation to their nonprofit. It is the end of the year when people are thinking about charitable donations, and it sounds like a very worthy cause. And for our listeners in the UK, we should also say that the People's Dispensary for Sick Animals run 48 pet hospitals Mm. across the UK. And the RSPCA also does some free and subsidised pet care. So if you do need pet care, those are the people to turn to. So organisations like those are clearly part of the solution. But what are the other options? Because I know during the pandemic, there was more kind of virtual consultations. And I guess that's cheaper than going to the vet in person. Is that still an option now? Absolutely. Pet telemedicine is a new thing that many vets are offering. But unfortunately, it's not straightforward. Each state has their own jurisdictions. It gets complicated. Here's Jenna. Telemedicine is tricky and it's been in the news for years. And a lot of vets are either resisting it or approaching it with extreme caution, as we should be. It's a little different than humans. When you are on a video call with a doctor and they can ask you a question, you can tell them how you're feeling. Our pets cannot tell us how they're feeling. And there's all kinds of things that a vet can pick up on a physical exam or even just studying the behavior or appearance of an animal that they can't do on a video. Yeah, okay, that does make some sense. When telemedicine is offered, it is usually with a whole bunch of caveats that make clear what the limitations of the technology are. So if you saw a pet in the office three weeks ago and you're doing a follow-up on a video chat, that might be more realistic. But if your pet's having trouble breathing, you know, you can't assess the pet that way. Okay, Jim, there has been a kind of elephant in the room since the start of this discussion, and it feels like the right time to bring it up now. And that elephant is? Pet insurance. I mean, in the UK, it's fairly common. I don't know what it is like in the US. Well, it is not that common in the United States. Pet insurance seems like a long-term solution that could help keep the cost of veterinary care down, but it is not that common here in North America. Interesting. Okay, so it it is fairly popular in the UK. I also have friends in Sweden, and I know it's popular over there. Mm -hmm. And it's not just popular, but it's not controversial. There's a reason for all of this. According to Randy Valpe, who is the Senior Vice President of Growth at a pet insurance company here in the US called Trupanion. Well, let's hear Randy. Even though we've been in the US as an industry since 1981, long time now, we're still educating people and I guess it comes down to the fact, again, the geography, the, the number of brands. Again, I refer back to UK where you've got over 100 brands of pet insurance in a very dense geography. You've got every grocery store in the UK promoting their own brand of pet insurance. You've got the Automobile Association doing it. You've got the post office doing it. 
people just don't know about it here in the US. Pet insurance is really, really low. Here's some stats. According to the website Policy Advisor, Policy, which is an online tool that aggregates and compares pet insurance plans, 85 million US households have a pet, but only 3 million-ish pets are insured. And if you do the math on that, it comes out to less than 5%. We sent some of our producers to dog parks throughout the US to ask that question and find out what dog owners in the wild had to say. I don't have pet insurance. I actually do not have pet insurance. The reasoning is because you still have to have the money up front and then you get reimbursed for it. Oh, I don't. I pay that full vet bill whenever... I need to. I have a cat personally, and I, I don't have insurance for her. So, and it was bad. I went to the emergency vet and had to spend six hundred bucks. I don't have pet insurance, mostly because I don't know if it'll be worth it. But I also haven't done that much research on it, to be honest. We spoke to dozens and dozens of people, and everyone we spoke to. No one had pet insurance. However, one person said that their sister did. I guess that tracks with the statistic of 5%. But why is that stat so low? Well, some of our dog park guests sort of previewed some of the reasons. Let's hear it from Jenna Strugowski. I think there's a few reasons for it. I think one of them is just that there's a lack of knowledge about what pet insurance offers and whether it's actually worth it. There were a few articles that came out in veterinary publications that looked at the lifelong cost of pet insurance versus the lifelong cost of wellness care and had determined in general you are lucky to break even or if you have a dog that has lots of health problems through its life, it's worth it. That was a few years ago. I think that the plans are changing and improving. So how do some of those newer models work? Historically, for most, if not all pet insurance plans, you have to come up with the cash for, say, $500-ish for a vet bill up front and then wait to be reimbursed. And that's precisely part of the problem with pet insurance, as described by one of our friends in the dog park, because a lot of people don't have that kind of money to hand. However, one company, Trupanion, has developed a solution. Trupanion is the only pet insurance company that has the ability to reimburse your veterinary directly such that when you check out, you're only responsible for your 10%. You pay that and then we'll reimburse that directly to our patented software to show the balance of that, which is great. So for those people that just don't even have the money to beg, even put it on their credit card, even if it's a short period of time, this is a, a lifesaver for them and it's really allowed us to propel our growth in the industry. As for that growth that he talked about, between 2019 and 2020 alone, the pet insurance industry in the United States has grown by 23%, according to one study. Now, as the pet insurance industry in the United States grows, it has lots of things that it has to look out for. And we, as consumers, have to look out for. One is that the pet industry could start to look a little like the human health insurance industry. Here's something that Karen ran into. They'll declare everything pre-existing, or there will be a window of time during which once you've acquired the policy, nothing's covered, where you have to wait. There are always exclusions. There are caps on treatment. Some companies are, in our opinion, not worth it because some of the same shenanigans that go on in human health insurance happen in terms of declaring things to be pre-existing that weren't. We've had that happen with our own animals. So 
that's always disappointing when there is a possible solution and it's administered badly or designed badly. The good news is that a lot of plans are changing for the better. And we do see that at least some percentage of pet owners are learning about pet insurance and have decided that it is a worthwhile investment. And when we use the word investment, we tend to think of return on investment. But it is important to remember that insurance is a different kind of investment. Never look to make money on any of your insurance products. It's there to provide you peace of mind. It's there to help you out. You know, you don't make money on it, and nor should you expect to. So assuming a pet owner has done all their research and found a plan that suits them and their pet, do we have a verdict? Is pet insurance worth it? Well, it would be nice, Claire, if we could walk away with such a clear-cut answer, wouldn't it? I think it just depends. I can't just say yes or no. you got to look at the fine print. What does it cover? Does it cover wellness? Does it cover certain emergencies? Are there breed exclusions? Some of them say it'll cover a certain illness, but not if you have this breed. And so it really depends on the individual dog and the individual person. If you're listening to this and thinking, hey, I want to learn more about pet insurance, or let me see how those plans have changed since the last time I looked into it, definitely look at the resources that we put in today's show notes. There's a whole bunch of links. Now, before we wrap up, there are two last things that every guest mentioned when it comes to financial planning for your dog and keeping vet bills down. And what are those? The first one is... Set aside some money for your dog. Even if you got a new puppy, start saving right away. Good advice. Best thing you can do is sit down and look at your budget. And you got to consider predictable versus non-predictable costs. Anybody who can, I would encourage to have a pet savings account or even just a separate credit card that you don't use often, that you only use for the pets and pay off as fast as you can. And I should say that if you're budgeting for annual vet visits, you'll be more inclined to actually go. Mm-hmm. And by making those regular visits, I'm sure you'll be saving money in the long run through preventative care as well. Exactly. And when it comes to preventative care, Dr. Marty has some advice for pup parents. You know the two things you can do to increase your pet's longevity and decrease veterinary bills? Number one, some kind of daily oral care. So you can add something to the water. That's good. You can use some kind of edible toothbrush, but brushing can also just mean a wipe. And secondly, Dr. Marty points out, keep pets at or near their ideal body weight. And if you do that, the dog will live about 15% longer. So yeah, preventative care is sort of a great segue into the second thing that all of our guests told us, which is actually listen to your veterinarian. Compliance with giving medication is very low. So give this dog this pill three times a day and put this on there. And okay, they go home and it ends up in the cupboard and not in or on the pet. And so they'll come back, you know, with the same problem. We need to do this. They'll go, oh, I still have the stuff you used last time. What? You still have the stuff. I'm sure a lot of our listeners who are very well-meaning do what the vet says to do, at least for the first few days after their appointment. But maybe after that, they they fall out of the routine. Hearing Marty say that is a good reminder that we really should be following the vet's instructions when it comes to medicine and other preventative care because it pays off in the long run. Right. It pays off for our dogs and it pays off for our bank accounts because we can save on vet bills because hopefully the dog won't get sick. Well, that is all we have time for today. There's a lot to digest in today's episode, and we are going to continue to cover the cost of caring for our dogs. 
And some of those costs are not just financial. If you go to the show notes for this episode, you'll find lots of links to some of the resources that we have discussed. And don't forget, in order to ensure that you get every episode of Dog Edition as soon as it drops, make sure you follow us in your podcast app. And don't forget as well to tell a friend about our show to help us grow. I'm Claire Mansell in London. And I'm James Jacobson in Hawaii. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I'd like to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now, on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.